This is Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken, and I'm here with... Suspended Reason. And today we're talking about Selection Games, which is, I believe, a name that Suspended coined. Um, and he's going to kind of outline the basics, of, uh, so take it away. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't done the relevant research and, and digging to know uh, whether that handle is unique, whether other people have talked about these kind of dynamics. But this all kind of comes out of some work that I've been thinking about writing, researching on surrogation, which is kind of this like superset that uh, I think exists around Goodhart's law and, and similar dynamics like wireheading and AI. And a lot of the kind of factorings of, let's say, Goodhart's law felt either a little incoherent to me or a little nonsensical or even banal once I started digging into the real dynamics of the games getting played. Um, and maybe maybe this will help illustrate why. So I think the starting place for me is trying to understand the games uh, that that surrogation happens within. And that frame to me is the selection game. Um, and I think selection games seem to really rule everything around us. Obviously, there's natural selection, um, which is kind of the basis for all life around us. But also, there's this whole world of dating and mating and employment and social connections and alliances. And there are some really important differences between natural selection and human selection. And I haven't heard a lot talked about about um, what those differences are and how they change the nature of selection games. Um, to me, the really fundamental difference here is that human beings are intelligent and they're adaptive. Uh, arguably, these are sort of the same capacity, but evolution in some sense is very dumb. Um, it basically can do one thing, which is, or does one thing, which is that things which work stick around. It is purely kind of a population-based numbers game of, um, of survival. And it works at the level of population. It works over very long time spans. Intelligence, however, is adaptive. Agents can, in the moment, between games, from game to game, hour to hour, day to day, change their behavior in order to win selection games, in order to change the nature of selection games. And they're all run socially. Rewards are often given based on like social sanctions and social norms and rituals rather than evolution where the payoff is automatic, right? Survival is just kind of this inherent natural physical reality rather than something where a person or an entity is subjectively judging. Oh, well, you know, this organism seems fit. There's only the physical fact of whether the organism survives in a given environment. So I think Goodhart's law, uh, which is this idea that any measurement which becomes a target uh, ceases to be a good measurement. Goodhart's Law sort of starts looking trivial because essentially any basis of selection, any basis of preferential treatment is going to be gravitated to. Intelligent agents will change their behavior in order to change the probability that they are selected for or aren't selected for. So for example, in mating, obviously, or dating, um, they're trying to be selected in most cases. And in something like draft dodging, they're trying not to be selected. And they will strategically change their behavior and change others' impressions of them in order to win those selection games. And in some sense, this is just what intelligence is. Intelligence is how one optimizes based on the situation one is in in order to secure the best outcome. And so if you have a selection game, intelligence automatically entails good heart slide automatically is that people will try to mess with uh, the selection process in order to uh, gain whatever outcome is most advantageous for them. And maybe that's where we can start. I love that. And, you know, one thing that really crosses my mind here is whenever I go to a physical pharmacy or supermarket or whatever, <clears throat> there are usually lots of options. And the problem is that generally different brands tend to start to brand themselves similarly to other brands in order to make, like, to er eradicate any possible signal towards, oh, this is what a good brand would do because they're trying to, you know, 
make this claim or whatever. And of course, you know, verbal claims are the easiest. So, you know, people can say best value or, you know, best on the market. And sure, theoretically, they can be sued. And, and some of them are, but it's a tricky game. And so instead, people use style in order to kind of show what a quality product would do. And there are various ways people can do this. I think the most interesting one perhaps is is graphic design because theoretically, you know, almost anyone can print almost anything um, on a product and say, oh, look, this is, you know, advertising the fact that it has kind of current modern style and it's probably a good quality product. Um, and that actually, I think, works pretty well because a lot of brands that aren't that good um, just don't keep up with this enough. And so they're always a little bit behind. But obviously there are, you know, a ton of counterexamples of people just having really good graphic design and not being able to, you know, aren't, they don't have a good product, but you can't tell the difference. Um, and so I think that's a really kind of clear way that everyone experienced. And I think one interesting factor there is that people tend to add levels of indirection in order to solve these games. So for instance, um, a lot of the times people prefer shopping at higher quality stores with less options because it's assumed that, you know, the store has kind of done the work for you. And if they haven't, you kind of can hassle them. You can review them badly until they have a reputation to upkeep. And you're assuming that they're doing the hard work of a selection game for you. One one clear analog here from the natural world is something like uh, physical appearance, phenotype. And I think, uh, I think what's key to these games is that oftentimes the reality that the selecting party is trying to ascertain is impossible or very expensive for them to ascertain. Um, and so maybe just to lay out the dynamics really quick. So in these selection games, right, you have a selector and you have an object of selection, let's say, or you, really you have several options. So just in general, when people are trying to optimize, uh, intelligence really looks like you assess your options and then you pick one, right? Selection games. Uh, and when people are picking other people, say for preferential treatment or for alliance or for, um, you know, membership in an organization, oftentimes the things that they really care about, they can't actually know for sure. So something like honesty, whether somebody's honest, that's something that even to the individual himself who is being evaluated, that's not really clear uh, how they'll behave under kind of the set of situations um, that maybe the employer cares about. And there's no real way to even get at whether this person is kind of deceptively presenting certain information or not. There's only certain public impressions or public displays or signs that people understand to associate or correlate with these more private realities. And so there are certain kind of symbols or signs like the style of a brand that get used as proxies. And so something that's very analogous to me to how people shop for shampoos is how a predator chooses between prey. And so if you look at poison dart frogs or you look at poisonous snakes, oftentimes they'll use red as a, as a sign essentially that they're quote unquote protected in, in the words of ethology, that, that they're poisonous and therefore no good to eat. But of course, other snakes or, or frogs who are not themselves poisonous can essentially free ride on and imitate this aesthetic style in order to be regarded in the same way, to be treated in the same way in selection games, which either means being selected or not being selected, being purchased as a shampoo or not being eaten as a frog. In or you know, uh, And I think that's key here, that there's this distinction between public realities and private knowledge. I totally agree. A few things I'll just say to kind of clarify and flesh that out. One, I'll just say, I kind of think of these signs that we're talking about as uh, indicators. That's the word that I'll use. And I think a good sign for an indicator that people can see, you know, for anything in their own life is anytime you feel cheated, like, wait, I didn't, that's not what I was buying. That's not what I wanted from the situation. It's a good bet they were using indicator. If you open up a banana and it didn't have any bruising on the outside or brown spots and it's, you know, kind of uh, mushy and brown on the inside, you're like, what? This, what? This isn't the banana right. that I got. 
Now, of course, you couldn't know. What you wanted is to eat a good banana, but you just don't have access to that information. And I think, you know, that feeling of cheating definitely happens um, all the time. Like people do it to themselves often with, you know, schedules. You'll try to schedule a day so that everything kind of can work out. And you're doing your best to basically create an impression, a model of how the day is actually going to look. But if you can't actually keep up with that schedule, you yourself feel cheated because you basically fabricated an indicator that you thought could be accurate, but you didn't have enough information. You weren't good enough at scheduling to actually figure out whether that was accurate. And you were only using this kind of shallow thing. And so I just want to kind of get across that, you know, private doesn't necessarily mean someone is keeping it private. It's just that it's harder to access. And, you know, these things occur all the time both with thinking and non-thinking, you know, things that you're selecting from. Yeah, totally. You know, just on the language front, uh, to some extent, this is pedantry, but at least we can, you know, keep our private language consistent here. So the way that I at least have been thinking about these things, uh, I I use the word marker versus metric. And to me, a marker is the same as an indicator. Uh, You know, you can use them synonymously, but there's just the nice uh, alliteration there. But to, to me, a metric is essentially a measurement that is exerts pressure in the selection game. So a measurement is something that can be neutral. So if I measure privately the uh, you know GDP of Sweden, that has absolutely no effect on how Swedes behave. Uh, my uh, my measurement just has no stakes or consequences for them. Uh, what I you know privately do in my bedroom. Uh, whereas, for instance. If the U.S. were making active decisions about policy and trade based on the GDP of other countries, suddenly how the U.S. measures other countries' GDP would be enormously uh, important for those countries. And that would then exert selection pressure and it would distort these countries' behavior. They would start either trying to – they would basically change their behavior in order to look good according to the measurement. And I guess – or essentially the metric since it's exerting pressure – And to me, maybe, I don't know if you agree with this, but to me, the basis or the difference between a marker and a metric is that a marker is something that is discrete. So it's either the presence of something or the absence of something. The colors on the light are either red, green, or yellow, whereas measurement is something more continuous. I don't know what you think of that. Oh, that sounds good to me. But just to be clear, then, there's a difference between a measurement and a metric, right? A measurement doesn't necessarily exert force. Yeah, I guess a measurement would be a superset, and the metric is a subset of measurement or that exerts selection force. So all all measurements would be continuous, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, there's, there's lots of ways you could frame this, but I think that's yeah. perfect. And I think what's interesting is that, in theory you could kind of imagine that, well, why isn't everything a measurement? Because nothing is really, really discrete, right? Like even the sun rising, you know, it's mm-hmm. a little bit rhythm. Um, But what I think is interesting is this is where you start to see that we choose what to measure based on cognitive load. And it's very useful to have discrete categories, often binary discrete categories, right? Um, and so, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people, um, when they, you know, introduce someone they're dating to their friends or someone they care about, they're looking for all of these binary indicators, like, you know, isn't she nice? Um, because that kind of, you know, is enough to be dealt with, whereas a very nuanced view becomes very complicated to make decisions about. So I think that's something that actually makes our job easier, that people tend to really want simple things, A, because it's very difficult to communicate about complicated things, and you have to explain what you're trying to measure, whereas a marker is just much, much easier. And B, they're making so many kind of uh, cross-validated decisions based on so much different evidence for different things that having discrete categories almost always simplifies that calculus. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think dating is the realm that maybe people are most familiar with these dynamics and talk about these dynamics, which not just the the pressure of selection games, but the way that people strategically represent to beat selection games and the way that... Uh, a la surrogation or Goodhart's law that that people are aware of the specific metrics or markers that are being looked for and then specifically try and distort or manipulate those and then the markers can lose some value. So, uh, you know, being over six foot is a clear one. And it's funny because in, in so many ways it's uh, arbitrary based on the uh, – 
you know, the, the unique system of measurement we have. So I don't have any, any data on this. Um, and I don't know much about, you know, cross-cultural dating cultures, but I have to guess that in, in cultures that are in the metric system, uh, there's a very different way that height is thought about. And maybe there are different kind of focal points or selling points at which, you know, people have this kind of divider over or under that they care about and that they're willing to fudge a little bit. Absolutely. In a, in both a, of definitely a few cultures. So I know a little bit about Israel and Italy and China and definitely like it's not six foot. And what happens a lot in China that's super interesting is a lot of it is based on, so I don't know if everybody knows that like the TikTok in China is called Douyin and it's a little bit different um, because they use slightly different algorithms and they have different content policies. Um, but a very, very common thing is these challenges. Um, so for instance, there was this one called the, I forgot, um, I forgot the Chinese name, but it's like a blank paper challenge where you use a piece of, I think like A4 paper is what they use. Um, and you see if you can, you know, occlude your waist entirely. Um, this is mostly for wow. women, of course. Um, but then someone pointed out and like made a video about how like depending on where you situate the camera, you can always do this. Um, and I feel like that's just the perfect example of, you know, people were holding it very close to themselves because they were honestly trying to see something about themselves and then they found something that they liked and they wanted to brag about it. And immediately the game became gamed. And then the people gaming the game, you know, people were annoyed about this as well and they wanted to reveal the gaming of the game. Yeah, I, one thing that's really interesting about all these games, I this is maybe a, a topic for another pod, but the the tyranny of round numbers is so strong, and the tyranny of just the kind of the arbitrariness of a formal system really has serious effects that don't get thought about a lot. I mean, you think about something like how dollar stores work or ninety nine cent pizza. I mean, entire businesses. Uh, can exist or not exist based on whether it's profitable to sell uh, an ob- an item at a round number, um, in part because people, you know, they don't want to deal with the hassle of change, um, in part just because the round numbers are appealing and simple. But you also see things like um, the obsession over the four-minute mile. Um, you see things like the concept of the triple-double in basketball, where it's about having, you know, three numbers like uh, shots, assists, or sorry, baskets, assists, um, steals, blocks, um, rebounds uh, that are in double digits. I mean, there you have multiple kind of round number things where you have, you know, over 10, which is based on a base 10 system. So we might, you know, that, that kind of statistic would look very different if we were on base 12 or base six or something. And, and then secondly, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of, of having three that, uh, are are in the double digits. Um, and so, you know, performances where somebody scores uh, nine points and then gets double digits on the other fronts, uh, you know, won't qualify. There are just all these ways that we round up or down in significant ways when we assess people's legacy or their quality uh, that are in some sense arbitrary um, and just based on the formal, formal system. Agreed. Um, and just... Two examples that I think are a bit poignant, six-figure salaries is definitely a big thing. Um, and what's interesting, though, because I don't think this is really socially constructed, or if it is, it's a very different kind of social construction than we're generally talking about music, right? Small number ratios work in music. And it kind of makes you wonder if this cognitive bias goes way deeper than just us kind of like what we consciously mm. are process because I do think humans have a huge tendency to think in small number ratios in even when that's not conscious thought right like and I think you could argue that enjoyment of music even though it can be affected consciously isn't a purely conscious experience that'd be interesting yeah that'd be really interesting um maybe a slight pivot here but so we're talking now about I think what it means to know the basis of selection in these selection games. So people are aware because, you know, they exist in a public forum where people talk about the nature of the games and the dynamics of games. They uh, get feedback from the selecting parties. So people therefore are aware that a number like six feet is fetishized or that an income is fetishized. And 
they know essentially what the kind of metrics and measurements and are the metrics and markers rather uh, that are exerting selection force in these games and that therefore they want to game. And I think what is important is if, if we're thinking about maybe different levels of these games, because there's a lot of kinds of selection games that are, you know, varyingly simple or complicated and the ability essentially to have a kind of full bodied selection game where both parties are actively strategically representing themselves and and trying to manipulate the, the basis of selection requires a handful of things. It requires an awareness of the selection game even occurring some rough model of the basis of selection. And then some ability to change uh, the impression that the selecting party has of the, you know, the options, the objects of selection. And so just to kind of illustrate that at maybe different levels. So one super simple selection game is somebody trying to, let's say, pick out gold. And they have a bunch of minerals, they're mining, and they're trying to determine which is gold or not. And they're going to look for certain public, you know, metonyms or certain public markers like shininess, uh, in order to determine, obviously your average miner doesn't have a chemical composition test. You can't actually know for sure whether something is the literal chemical gold, but there are all these public appearances that, you know, typically statistically correlate with the private inner reality of its chemical composition, uh, that he can make these decisions based on. But here, of course, the the rock, let's say the mineral under consideration in the selection game, it has no stake in being selected or not. It has no awareness of the selection game occurring. And even if it were aware and had a stake, it has no ability to change the impression that the, you know, the miner has of it as a mineral. It can't morph forms or somehow affect the miner's appearance. It, it has no agency whatsoever. And then you kind of, you step up a little bit and maybe you're looking something more like a tree. And, you know, let's say John is going out and he wants to build a wooden fence and there's a specific kind of tree that he wants to pick for his wooden fence. So here the tree obviously has a stake in being selected or not. It doesn't want to be chopped down. And it might even have some awareness that it has been selected insofar as, you know, once the axe starts uh, chipping into its bark, it might have some awareness that it's under attack. Um, And it might have some really, really basic static abilities to, you know, prevent certain kinds of attack. Or it might have certain, you know, really static disguises that have been evolved, but it can't dynamically understand the basis by which John is selecting it um, for getting chopped down. And it has no ability in the moment to... Uh, change the impression that John has of it. Uh, you know, a maple tree can't disguise itself as an oak in order to change, you know, whether it's tapped for syrup or not. And so I think that you really have to get up to the point where these games are being played between two agents who are, are intelligent, where they can actually have some theory of mind about why the other party is selecting or not selecting between options in order to then game it. And so it's, you know, we take for granted, of course, that people generally have an ability to, to some extent, change their, you know, their appearances or impressions. But a a key part of this is how transparent is the basis of selection? How, how much can the you know object of selection or an option under consideration actually affect and manipulate and subvert the party that's trying to select it? Uh, and this, to me, there's this core trade-off I think, where as a democracy, uh, as a liberal democracy, we believe a lot in transparency as a value, in things being transparent and fair, and people knowing why they were picked or not picked for something. But unfortunately, this is directly at odds with how gameable the selection systems are, because as soon as there's a clear, you know, knowledge of the basis of selection, there's going to be this this gravitational force where people are trying to subverse subvert the ability of the assessing party in order to, you know, get the the outcome that they want out of the selection game. I think that's a really interesting point. <clears throat> and I think one place where people can see this um, really concretely is whatever you feel politically about the SATs, 
What's really interesting is the idea of designing a test you can't study for. And that was the intention, or at least the claimed intention of the SPs, right? And the point is exactly what you're saying. People want it to be transparent, but not gameable. And, you know, that is considered a very hard thing because of the exact thing that you're describing, which is as soon as something is transparent, you can kind of decompose the mechanism and start seeing what allows you to click the buttons that isn't the intended force, actually. Yeah. Something like, for instance, um, you know, the vocab section of an SAT. I don't know much about the SAT's origin, but my speculation would be that that is essentially serving as a proxy for how much people have read. The more you've read, the broader your vocabulary. And, you know, to some extent, probably uh, this is all going to correlate with your ability to succeed in college, um, your ability to kind of understand the material, et cetera. But people obviously can, can game that just by, you know, studying flashcards. And obviously we know that you know, tutoring and studying does allow people to level up several hundred points, uh, I think is typically maybe 200 points, I think is what people point to as the max you can change. I don't know how good those studies are, but. I think that's right that that's considered the max, though I think on average, there's a lot of reversion to the mean. Um, So I think actually a lot of people do worse on their second test, but this isn't something that I claim to know about and I'm not Mm. going to have any specific position. But what I will say that's interesting about the flashcard example is I think people really suck at learning new vocab when it's not in context. And there is significant evidence for that, that cognitively it's very difficult. And I think that's exactly why that was the choice. And, you know, whether it works or not is up for debate. But that, as far as I can tell, people who have tried to, you know, memorize the dictionary in order of frequency haven't actually done a great job and often don't aren't able to remember those things because we don't remember words the same way we remember facts. Um, and actually learning basically requires you to read. And it's not, you know, like you say, it is gameable to a certain extent. But I think it's interesting to see kind of that design choice and what people are kind of trying to do, which is that even if you know something is useful, it doesn't allow you to affect yourself to immediately do that. You know, like I know being fit and having visible abs would, you know, help me in all kinds of ways. Um, But I can't just make that happen. I have to make certain trade-offs and certain of those trade-offs are behavioral and I'm more or less able to make them given my past history. So there's a reason why I'd want to kind of game the system and there's a reason why certain things become popular because often they're the ones that are difficult to game. So I think, you know, the reason why you see a lot of uh, hierarchies or inequality where there's like a, a subset of people who are very appraised for a certain thing and everyone's like, well, I could do that if I really concentrated on that all day is because you can't concentrate on everything all day. Yeah. So the things that you know, are naturally selective become the selectors that are favored in a social population. No, that's super important. I mean, we've essentially stumbled upon the concept of a costly signal here, but uh, 100% that, you know, we're, the the kind of markers and metonyms and i'm using the word metonym here um just because i think essentially people use these parts these public parts these public signs uh which they don't really care about on their face you know people don't really care about the louis vuitton bag for the louis vuitton bag itself it's because the louis vuitton bag says something quite you know greater about the person who's owning it that that it you know means anything and maybe this is just what meaning means uh, this kind of metonymic entailment or pointing to something larger. You know, obviously these kind of metonyms or markers that can't be faked are the ones that we find most valuable because we can rely on them the most. What's super interesting about the Louis Vuitton example is, I don't know if you've seen this classic advertisement by Louis Vuitton, where it's, the advertisement is literally how to tell Uh, whether a Louis Vuitton bag is authentic and it shows fake and it shows someone holding it above their head to block out the rain and it shows real and it shows someone holding themselves over the bag in order to stop the rain from touching the bag. And (laughs) I think what's so interesting is it's Louis Vuitton admitting that they literally, you know, they can't design a bag that's so obvious that it couldn't be faked. So you have to rely on people you know, using their private knowledge to display public information by costing themselves some issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, a great little example. I'll have to try and track down that ad. 
I I want to jump into an example from The Wire, but I think first there's one last kind of key dynamic, which has already been implicit in our conversation about selection games, but is worth making explicit. And that is that by and large, the selecting party, the selector, typically wants to make an honest assessment. They want to know the truth. They want to know the full private reality as well as they can. And the party being selected wants whatever, you know, appearance perception uh, that, you know, benefits their interests. Um, So, you know, uh, a military doctor who is making an assessment uh, about the health of a potential draftee his institutional interest is in selecting for all the, you know, healthy civilians who can serve, uh, you know, have the physical stamina and health to, to go out and fight in the war and selecting out all the people whose health concerns would make them liabilities in the field. On the other hand, the uh, person being evaluated, the civilian, the potential draftee, uh, His interest essentially, you know, we'll just say in this particular instance, he doesn't want to go to war. And so his interest is in manipulating the assessment in essentially subverting the clear perception or the ability of the selecting party to accurately perceive the situation. And that's really where I think we have to understand these selection games as adversarial. There is an active uh, competition that is deeply antagonistic between the selecting party and the selected for party where one wants the truth and the other wants to distort the truth favorably. And so here, for example, uh, perhaps the, the draftee might know that a high heart rate is a clear sign of a bad heart. And one of the things that doctors check for, you know, a, a marker or a metric, And he might then go, you know, get jacked up on stimulants and come into his assessment so that the doctor thinks he has a resting heart rate of 120 and disqualify him from duty. And that's, I think, the kind of game ability that we're talking about here and and maybe just sort of reiterates how adversarial this selection game is and sets us up nicely for this this scene in The Wire, which we can play. It's essentially a scene, you know, the, uh, the detective is trying to, you know, Ostensibly, the the game is that the detective is trying to find the real, uh, the real suspect or the real killer in a crime, the real perpetrator, and the real perpetrator, as well as all the other suspects, is trying to avoid getting thrown in prison. So you can kind of see the how the selection game plays out there, and maybe we can let the clip roll. I don't know if you have any follow up thoughts before we jump into it. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. I guess I'll just add one thing, which is there's a spectrum of how much you want to be selected or not selected. And certain things do want a ratio of selection where you want to attract some some, uh, percentage of people who would select you or things that would select you and not all of them. Uh, And we can get into that. And I think that just, you know, a natural handle for that is this idea of self-selection that people are, you know, kind of familiar with, uh, like a self-selecting institution for which only the right people would apply to or only a subgroup that tends to have more of the right people would apply to. So the dynamics can get very complicated, but I think that's exactly right. All right. Should we play this clip? So in this scene, the, the broad contours or the general sketch is that the detective has a suspect in for a murder. And he tells the suspect that the suspect's friend, who you know was either an accomplice or a witness of this murder, allegedly, is off in the other room, you know, spouting his mouth and essentially giving away his pal. And that as a reward, they've given given the, the friend McDonald's because, you know, he's uh, running his mouth and being so cooperative. And then the scam that they basically, uh, that they pull on their suspect is they then walk the friend or accomplice, you know, by the door of the interrogation room, holding some McDonald's so that it looks like, in fact, their story has just been confirmed that their representation of the game state so far is, in fact, true. And then what they do is they take the suspect out, the suspected murderer out, and they take him to a Xerox machine. And they tell him that the Xerox machine is a lie detector. You know, they tape his hands onto the glass screen that scans. 
And then they preload a couple of pages on which are printed true, true, and false on each of the three pages, respectively. And the detective asks, you know, a sequence of questions and then prints out these, you know, pre, uh, preordained uh, sequence of answers and to essentially pull a heist or pull a scam and pretend that this is a lie detector. Yeah, that's that's the gist. I'm here to tell you this remaining silent shit ain't nothing like they make it out to be. Hmm. You up in here all tight with it. Waiting for your pay lawyer. Thinking you all wise, ain't you? No, see? That work when you some kind of criminal mastermind. When you ain't been seen running from the deed. When your own fucking running partner ain't in the next room. Putting you in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's telling it like a little bitch. We even went to Mickey D's for him because he was so motherfucking helpful. Two quarter pounders, big fries, McDonald land cookies, Dr. Pepper. That's how your boy rolled, right? All right, step out. Where are we going? Break room. So you can enjoy that, huh? All right. I still ain't saying shit to you. Yeah. Why now? What the fuck? How many years you figure we've been doing this same shit? Twenty at least. Uh, true. True. False. Load them up. So this shit actually works, huh? Hell yeah. Americans are stupid people by and large. We pretty much believe whatever we're told. So can feel my heartbeat? Pops, yeah. If Marno said I had the gun, he lying. The machine tells the tale, son. We ready, Professor? Yeah. We'll start with an easy one. Is your name, in fact, Deshaun Fredericks? Yeah. True. And do you reside, in fact, the 1200 block of Woodyard Street in West Baltimore? Yeah. And did you and Monel shoot your boy Pookie down on Carey Street just like Monel said you did? Nah, no. Lie. You lying motherfucker. Mm. Mm. The machine is never wrong, son. Fuck, oh, man. Nigga can't never keep his damn mouth shut. I should have busted a cap and Pookie ass my own self. Left Marnell home and shit. He's just a bitch is all. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. I think what's interesting here, I mean, there are a lot of examples of appearance and reality, you know, which is a common theme. And, you know, we're saying there's this kind of marker attribution where people are trying to use markers in order to understand stuff and other people are trying to look for them. But uh, I think one interesting factor here, right, is people's ability to give markers. And they really play with that here where in the scene, uh, they have this, uh, you know, friend walk by with McDonald's in order to corroborate their story. You know, the clear marker is the presence of McDonald's. But also the friend happens to have fries in their mouth in the moment that they're walking by. And you kind of assume that, you know, they were like, oh, no, you can't eat it here yet. And they were taking um, this friend to the break room in order for him to eat, uh, ostensibly to the friend. But then, you know, he's like, oh, okay, fine, you can take a bite. And that's kind of the perfect example of stopping someone from actually making a new marker or measurement or giving 
any kind of new information that would make it clear about the reality that's going on. And suppression, you know, this kind of suppression of the ability to mark things is also a very common uh, strategy in all of these election games. Yeah, there's another really good example, and it unfortunately doesn't come across in the audio, but you do hear this reference to professor and the professor that they're uh, that they're referencing there, you know, standing in the room. It's actually just, you know, a sergeant in the detective team and he's wearing suspenders I mean, he sort of looks like a professor. It's sort of compelling, but at best in a Halloween way. And we talked a little bit last week about uh, just about stereotypes and, and roles and a bit and the sophistication thereof. I think we talked a bit about this hotel concierge essay, The Tower. And one of the ideas in the tower is that one form of, of privilege, as we think about kind of privilege in, in the current political landscape, is that it's the ability for one's representation to be understood, which is in a lot of ways analogous to how detailed or nuanced this kind of stereotypes about people are. And so, you know, one, one argument or claim here might be that uh, for white men, there is a subtle but real difference that people can uh, understand between Elliot Smith depressed and uh, Bright Eyes depressed. That the kind of stereotypes about kinds of white guys is subtle and nuanced and has enough distinctions in it, at least to you know white affluent people within within a certain culture. They understand these kind of nuanced stereotypes and roles and characters. Uh, in a fairly fine-grained way that they maybe don't understand the outgroup as well. And to me, this is, I think, an example where uh, to somebody who has been to college and is, you know, an affluent white person, the the markers of the professor would not stand up. They wouldn't be fooled. But to a poor black kid uh, who's never really been around college or academic culture, Eh, all it really takes are suspenders and a button-up shirt and a white guy for him to be like, eh, that looks like a plausible professor. And so if we're thinking about metonyms pointing to larger realities, it's much easier to fake just by propping up some kind of superficial markers or metonyms, this kind of larger reality, if people's, their model of, you know, the kind of integrated set of markers that people can present is not especially sophisticated or nuanced in a certain domain. Agreed. And what I think is interesting is, you know, The Wire is from the 2000s. And I feel like back then, they're, they're kind of relying on this, well, professors do tend to dress a certain way and act a certain way. And this is kind of a cheap fake of it. But I think that's less and less the case. And, you know, I had lots of professors who came into the class in jeans, and I couldn't have distinguished them from, you know, an older student. Um, and I think what's interesting is that this could still kind of happen today, but it would look very different where it's not just that you wouldn't know the costume if you hadn't been to college, but at least you would be a little bit more suspicious that anyone could be a professor or not a professor. And I think that's kind of an interesting difference that like there's still the exact same dynamic, but instead of it being a direct kind of, oh, fooled you with uh, an inaccurate marker that is, you know, kind of the cheap version that you should be able to tell the difference it would be there isn't an accurate marker. And so you shouldn't be immediately convinced by any like uh, easily presentable evidence. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I'm curious if you have speculation, but it's not immediately clear to me what drives those changes. I mean, one part of the picture, of course, is that if you present as a professor in a culture or, or society in which people have very strong understandings of, you know, how a professor looks. So for example, maybe in the seventies or sixties, this could look like uh, a tweed or corduroy blazer, uh, maybe slightly disheveled and, you know, bookish and with glasses or something like that. If you were to present that way as a businessman, it would be very strange. And I'm not sure it would help you. I think it would really throw people. I think you'd have a lot of interactions where people would start interacting with you a certain way because, a big part of how roles work and how personas and stereotypes work is that a script of how to interact with this person accompanies it. You know, you see somebody and they look like uh, an admiral, uh, you're going to treat them a little differently than if, you know, they look like a lowly boatswain. 
but it's not clear to me what what drives that shift. I'm curious if you have thoughts or hypotheses. One of the major factors here is the fact that often markers come to mean more than one thing and positions themselves, you know, inner private realities also. And those things can become, you know, negative and and be tied up with positive and negative. And I think the impression of academia was the ivory tower. And there began to be a lot of pushback to that along the lines of kind of the democratization of knowledge and of education. And, you know, I think this is very related to the same strain of thought that, you know, says university should be free universally. Um, I think that made it feel like, who are these professors who are dressing up so, you know, specifically and have their own kind of tight subculture and are doing science behind closed doors and like, what the hell? And so I think the people who kind of grew up in this democratized knowledge, what the hell is this culture, became professors. And when that happened, they started to dress differently because they didn't want to feel like they were part of the people that they used to hate, but they still kind of, you know, wanted to be professors for the status and for the ability to do research or to teach or whatever their desires may be. And so they had to kind of find a way to carve out a new role. And one of the ways to do that was to be a professor and have the mark of not having the normal mark, right? And that is in itself a mark. But as that happens, like any kind of mark starts to fade in meaning and it becomes much more of a personal choice because they're diluting the mark of, oh, professors tend to dress like this. Totally. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it seems to me like there's this tension between uh, intra-group distinction, distinguishing yourself from other professors, and then intergroup distinction. So professors distinguishing themselves from the rest of the public. So, uh, and I think this happens a lot, but there there is, right, this pull towards diversity where people want to say, eh, I'm not like you, so I'm going to dress a little differently. But that then kind of breaks down the, the aggregate group identity um, to other groups. There's almost a kind of nesting that, that happens. I strongly agree with that. And I think what's really interesting there especially is that this doesn't tend to happen in very, very small groups because you can literally explicitly coordinate. You can say like, hey, why don't you dress like the rest of us and we're all going to treat you like this if we don't. But when groups become big enough, you rely on being able to be acquainted with distinctions by exposure. And when that happens, there's a lot more inter-intra-group tension. Because if the intra-group tension creates too much splintering, you can no longer understand the taxonomy that well by exposure directly, which might be your only signal if you go to a new college and you want to understand, you know, how what what dressing differently means and what the social structure of the space is. Yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe to get back to the kind of exhibit before we leave it behind at all, I think there may be some remaining dynamics that are worth bringing up. So, you know, on one hand, we've talked about, you know, the 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 basic sketch of the game that the suspects aren't trying to go to prison and that the detectives are trying to find the true suspect. And that may seem like a problematic carving to some people, especially given uh, recent anti-police sentiment. And I think it is a problematic carving because it sort of hides the true nature of these selection games, which is that they tile all the way up and down an institution. So for instance... Let's say, so in the case of John and the lion, you know, in the uh, the prehistoric uh, savannah, the lion wants to make an honest assessment about whether John uh, is edible, whether he can be easily caught and eaten without exerting too much energy, uh, whether he'll put up a fight or poses a risk to the lion's life. Actually, an interesting note uh, my my understanding is that at least in lynxes, lynxes have really finely tuned algorithms for how long it's worth chasing their prey, because when especially in winter environments where prey is really scarce and every calorie counts, 
there is just this trade-off at, you know, at a certain point and a very, apparently a very predictable point, they will give up a chase of, for instance, a rabbit, because at that point, the trade-off no longer makes sense to continue pursuing it, right? So there, whether it is the result of intelligence or evolution doesn't totally matter for our purposes. The reality is that there's this very finely calibrated ability to, uh, to weigh options and this very deep, important uh, stake in making the right assessment about whether something can be caught uh, in a calorically efficient way or not. So that maybe exists in these kind of like intrinsic reward games where there's no social mediation of the reward and the reward just automatically comes to the lynx or the lion when they catch their prey. But in institutions, all rewards are, for the most part, socially mediated and socially sanctioned in how they are awarded. And that this fundamentally changes things. So the detective gets no intrinsic reward from catching the correct suspect. Rather, he gets an extrinsic, socially sanctioned reward from his superiors based on his performance. And because this is a judgment by another entity who can only rely on perceptions, just as he can only rely on his perceptions and the markers and you know metonyms and metrics of the suspects, uh, his superiors can only evaluate the detective based on the markers and metrics of success and being a good detective. And so what the game that the detective is playing is actually not finding the correct true suspect. Actually, his game is to look like a good detective for superiors because there's all these selection games of promotion, of not getting fired, maybe of not getting sued or doing something illegal. There are all these selection games in which he wants to be either positively or negatively selected. And so there's this nesting all the way up and down the institution's activity of both this kind of appearance-based, um, gameable uh, distortion of appearances and at the same time, this assessment of appearances down the chain. I totally agree. And kind of two interesting points there are, one, it's the sergeant who got to be the professor and kind of have a fun little game and not do the hard work, um, A, because it's not his job, but B, by allowing him to participate, they kind of get this thing of like, look, we're doing our work, we're doing what we know works, and look, we got this result and showing it to the sergeant who, you know, has the, um, what is it, the general, or I remember the title, but Rawls his ear, who is like the big boss. I think the point is it's always good to make your boss or people who have your boss's ear look at you doing the right thing. Um, and I think that really comes across here. And I think you don't even need a real institution to see this. And I'll use the example of the Lynx, um, which I think this is true in, in a number of predators. I've, I've heard um, of studies, but only secondarily. Um, but I think what's interesting is I think it's pretty hard to distinguish whether the lynx is doing a really good job of tuning the right parameters to know when to stop or whether maybe it's doing an okay job or even a bad job that's super strictly tied to a very simple algorithm that maybe isn't very accurate. And that's what makes it easy for us to see that the lynx is making this decision. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very difficult often to distinguish between examples or demonstrations of good strategy, a good selectional behavior versus example of demonstrations that look like good selection strategy. And selection strategies are just as much affected by selection games as everything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. hundred percent. I, maybe my last question about all this stuff before we wrap, since we're coming up on the hour, you know, a lot of these concepts and ideas just end up brushing up against or even just reinventing, reinventing elements of signaling theory. Um, so this idea of costly signals is the ones that are hard to fake. Um, arguably, I mean, you could say what signaling is, is its attempts to, you know, alter the relevant markers that are used in selection games in natural ecosystems. And I'm curious if you think we get mileage from this alternate frame, um, whether these kind of selection dynamics are already implicit in signaling theory, and maybe whether those kinds of dynamics can still be applied from signaling theory into the human institutional realm, or whether there are key differences that don't make it so easily applicable. 
So I'll admit that I don't know as much about signaling theory as I should. I've read all these bits and pieces, um, but I think this is somewhat different. Um, and my main reasoning there is because I think there's a very specific aspect to selection that signaling often doesn't cover that deeply. So like often, at least the way I see it described, signaling theory will be about you know, oh, there's this thing that, you know, everybody wants, everyone wants to appear rich, or it's good to be cooperative, or you need this for that. Um, but I think selection games are actually very specific. And it's interesting. I mean, I guess the sign for me of a good metaphor, a good framework is it's specific, but somehow it's everywhere, right? We see selection effects absolutely everywhere. And I think one big part of that that's interesting is that we don't need an active signaler to see selection effects, right? Like this entire idea about the tree, the tree isn't participating or it's participating at a much, much longer time scale. And you still see these aspects of selection games that like play through and we can go through example after example of this. So I think that's already a big difference that you don't need, um, you don't need all the participants to be thinking. And I think another thing that's kind of different is that often these things are not directly about just the act of signaling. Maybe signaling happens at the end, but they're about being acquainted with the world. And being acquainted with the world is very, very difficult. And often signaling is, you know, actually both about trying to give the truth and trying to give lies in, in the same breath or in various different parts of like how the signals happen or various you know parts of the ecosystem of a signaling process. So I think signaling tends to have this flavor of what am I trying to say? And I think selection games reframe this as what am I trying to know? And how does that end up affecting the behavioral ecology of the system? Which I think is somewhat different. I guess my last follow-up question I'm curious about, like you said, I think the selection game frame is, it feels specific and then it's also sort of everywhere. I'm curious, I mean, obviously in natural selection, when we talk about selection games, we're specifically talking about perseverance over time. Certain things survive and certain things don't. But when we talk about selection games more broadly, they start kind of rubbing up against the border of just what it means to give preferential treatment. So you can be selected for an advantageous situation or reward or payoff or not. And so to some extent, uh, a selection game is really any game that is run off of preferential treatment, uh, you know, the preferential uh, allocation of rewards or punishments which sort of just seems like how games in general run, that there's almost something redundant about saying selection games because all games are selection games, or at least maybe all finite games are selection games, all games that can be seen as having an ending and a result, um, an outcome to it, rather than just kind of the Calvin and Hobbes style of game that's more about uh, in, you know, mutual entertainment and bonding. Uh, when we're actually thinking about games that serve purposes where the result of the game uh, is seems typically either to determine how to allocate resources to people or to determine who ought to be a member or not a member of some team or alliance. I agree that things can always be viewed that way. But I think selection games, at least as we tend to actually break them down in this conversation, um, are more specific than that. So here's an example if I write an essay for a professor, I want to get good marks. Um, and I think there's also the private selection issue that I personally really hate it when I write an essay that I myself hate. And I've done it plenty of times, um, but it bothers me. So I'm, I'm duly constrained. But I don't think I'm playing a selection game with each word. Or I don't think that that would be a very useful framework because I think I have learned the skill of writing. And writing is this actually a very complex skill that has lots of subparts and I won't even try to describe it here. Um, but with the frame of a selection game, we can point to specific aspects of the essay that are made to, meant to act as selectors. And I think what selection games give us is a very specific kind of move you can play, which I do not think is the only kind of move. And, you know, 
like the easy version of this is, you know, playing video games and playing video games with friends. You're not playing a selection game with every move. You're really trying to do this complex skill of coordination and strategy, right? Um, and I don't think that that has to do with selection so much as the actual underlying dynamics of the specific game and your ability to execute them, which is limited. And then you kind of trying to find strategies that actually are amenable to the skills you have right now and the skills you could develop by acting on them. So I think selection games are interesting in that they basically describe situations in which we have free choice and we're going to be bound to our choice somehow. And I think those are very common situations, but I certainly don't think that they're everything. Well, I think that was a good conversation. We can wrap it at the hour. I am curious, maybe next week, I'd love to hear about uh, your bag of Skittles theory. Uh, which is, you know, a bit like uh, what we've been talking about, these kind of selection games. But I think the idea, as you represented it to me, was that, you know, people have this bias towards picking out their favorite Skittles, but pretty soon that means they're left with a bag of the Skittles they like the least. And there's a lot of instances, I think, where this kind of short-termism ends up with kind of long-termist self-defeating strategies. Uh, but we'll wrap up for now and uh, good chatting and thanks to listeners for listening. I'm Crispy Chicken. I just want to remind you that if you have a favorite Skittle, you're already losing. <laughs>